Gracious God, we give you thanks for gathering us here. As we investigate this ancient passage, we ask that our hearts and our minds would be open, that we might be able to see how this ancient story is so powerful and relevant for us today. And so we ask that we would be receptive to the work of your spirit. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So during this Advent season, we are going to look at four popular TV shows and movies, series. And there's a common theme across all of these TV shows and movies that we're going to look at. And it's the theme of the rise and the fall of empires. Now, every single one of these TV shows and movies are fictional. But I think that uh, if you're a fan of it, you'll find that these are captivating stories because stories of empire rising and falling, stories of underdogs and oppression, those are actually real stories. And those are stories that captivate uh, us on an emotional level, but it also captivates our sense of hope and awe and wonder as well. And so before we talk about uh, this Advent series about empires, I feel like I need to explain or define what empires and Advent is. So first is empire. What is an empire? We talk about the word empire a lot, and it's used to describe lots of different things. But I wanted to have work from a very specific definition. And so I consulted the source of all knowledge, which is the almighty internet. So I Google searched to find empire. And one of the definitions that came up was this, a multi-ethnic or multinational state that has political and or military power over a population that is ethnically different from the ruling group. So an empire is defined when one particular ethnicity has power and rules over another ethnicity. Now an empire is different from a federation because a federation is where people of different ethnicities mutually agree to form one sort of multinational state. But an empire is always created because one group conquers and destroys and captures another group. And uh, empires will usually tax the uh, states that they have conquered so that they can reap the benefits and the resources from the group that is conquered. So that's sort of what an empire is. Uh, now for the word advent. Unless you grew up in a very liturgical church tradition, the word advent might not be something familiar to you. Uh, can we get a quick show of hands? How many of you don't really know what the word advent means or didn't grow up with that word? Quite a few of us, right? Me too. I didn't know what Advent meant. Advent is the four Sundays, the four weeks before Christmas. And it's a traditional Christian season where we prepare for the coming, the birth of Jesus. The word Advent in English comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means the coming. So it's saying Jesus is going to be born in four weeks, so we will spend four weeks preparing for the ramifications, preparing for what that means that Jesus is coming to this earth. Now what's interesting is this. For the early Christians, Advent, preparing for the birth of Jesus, was not about celebrating Jesus' birthday. Like, happy birthday, baby Jesus. 
Like I had a coworker who uh, in her family on Christmas, they, the parents didn't give the kids any presents. And the reason rationale was, it's Jesus's birthday, why should you get any presents? What presents did you bring to Jesus? And of course, like the kids were always like, oh, it's not fair, everyone else gets presents. But it wasn't just about the celebration of Jesus's birthday, and it certainly wasn't about holiday wars, it certainly wasn't about whether Starbucks has a red cup or a Christmas cup or Dunkin' Donuts has a holiday cup. It was about the rise of empires. For the early Christians, the coming of Christ meant that the empire that they lived in was coming to an end. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, this week, we're going to look at a popular book series called The Song of Fire and Ice. The Song of Ice and Fire, or better known as Game of Thrones. We got two fans right here. So, can I just see a quick show of hands? How many of you are familiar fans of Game of Thrones? Okay, cool. More people know Game of Thrones than about Advent. Awesome. So, for those of you who don't know, let me just give you a quick synopsis of what Game of Thrones is about. There is a land, it's a continent, and it's called Westeros. And on Westeros, it's a multinational state. There are different sections of Westeros ruled by different uh, warlords or different rulers. And so there's kingdoms all across from the east to the west to the north to the south and the center all over. But there's one king, there's one ruler that governs over the entire land of Westeros. And this king or this ruler sits on a throne that's allegedly made from 1,000 swords, but in the book, they say it's actually only 200. And the ruler sits on this iron throne. Now, the premise of Game of Thrones is that all of these rulers from all across the land of Westeros, they all want to sit on the iron throne. They all want to be top dog. They all want to be the ruler. So what do they do? They scheme, they plot, they cheat, they lie, and they murder each other so that they can gain power. That's why it's called the Game of Thrones. Everyone is clawing their way up to the top. Now in season one, or book one, of the Game of Thrones series, it focuses on the family of a guy named Lord Eddard Stark. Uh, they call him Ned Stark for short. I don't know how they got Ned from Eddard, but it just is. Lord Ed Stark, Neddard Stark, he lives far up in the north. So he's kind of removed from all the chaos and all of the other kings and warlords and lords who are living in Westeros. And he is an honest man. He values justice and fairness. Uh, the people that he rules over, they all love him because they say he's a fair and good ruler. Now, Ned Stark is different from all of the other lords because Ned actually has no desire to sit on the Iron Throne. He has no desire to claw his way up the political ranks. He just wants to be a good, fair man that uh, serves the people. Now, what happens in stories like this where you have this good guy that just wants to be left alone? Typically, they get thrust into the heart of the chaos. And so Ned Stark, through a series of circumstances, has to go and meet with all of these lords who are basically liars and murderers trying to kill themselves. And he's just thrust into the middle 
of that conflict. And so what do you do when you're around people where there's all kinds of cheating and lying and killing? You have two options, really. You can either compromise and do what it takes to survive, or you can try to maintain your integrity and try to be just and honest and not compromise and try to hold on to what you value as true. And Ned Stark, he decides that he will not compromise his values, that he is not going to become evil and corrupt like the other rulers. And so he maintains his integrity. Now, if you've ever, even if you've never watched Game of Thrones, what happens when you're the good guy in the midst of all, lie, all these lying murderous people? Are you going to survive? Plot spoiler, Ned Stark doesn't survive. They imprison him unjustly, and then they behead him. Now, this, now I'm not giving away anything where like, oh, the series is spoiled. I'm never going to watch Game of Thrones now. This is actually just the prequel. It's just the setup for the rest of the story. Because the story, it didn't end with Ned Stark, the man of integrity. The story continues with his illegitimate son named Jon Snow. Jon Snow is, we don't know where he's really from, but they just call him Ned Stark's illegitimate son. And being an illegitimate son, he has no claim to any inheritance. So he has no wealth. He is illegitimate, so he has no claim to any sort of political power. He's not the son of a lord. They call him the bastard Jon Snow. And he has no social power. Basically, he's at the bottom of the rung. He's just a commoner. There's nothing about him that gives him nobility or status. And somehow, this character Jon Snow of low birth, on his shoulders rests the fate of Westeros. How is he going to bring balance and justice and order among these powerful lords? And how is he going to bring an end to this empire on Game of Thrones? We don't know. Nobody knows, because the series isn't over yet. But uh, I think Game of Thrones season six starts in the, in the springtime. So if you want to catch up, right now is the time to binge watch seasons one through five. It's a great show. You got to get through some of the violence and the gratuitous sex, but um, otherwise it's a great show. But is Game of Thrones, is that story really an original story? Is it unique? I don't think so. I think the story of the underdog in the midst of an empire, I think it's a common tale. And I think it's a story that has been told thousands of years ago and thousands and thousands of times over. It's a powerful story. And I think that it's a story that is also found in the Gospels in the New Testament. Talk about a segue right into our scripture reading. Before we uh, get into Mark chapter 1, we have to look at a little bit of the context, the historical context of what's going on in our scripture reading today. It takes place in the first century Mediterranean region of the world. And during the first century, the entire Mediterranean region, basically all of the countries uh, that border the Mediterranean Sea were ruled by the Roman Empire. The Rome basically systematically went through the entire region, conquering countries and villages and lands, and ruled everything. 
And Israel, the place where the Gospels take place, was a part of the Roman Empire. Now, if you were part of the Roman Empire, what it meant was that the Roman armies were always present. So if you got acted out of line, the Roman army, they would kill you and they would crucify you. The Roman Empire would tax you. And they would take money from you, not for social services, not for the betterment of humanity. They would tax you so that the rulers in Rome could line their pockets and become even more rich. And so it's within this context that the Gospel of Mark was written. The people were enslaved, they were poor, they were broken, and they were oppressed. And our author today begins with these words. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, so Mark begins by saying, quoting the prophet Isaiah, saying, get ready, prepare the way for someone who is going to come. And so we read that, okay, it's like prepare the way for Jesus. But for the original audience, that would have read the Gospel of Mark or heard the Gospel of Mark, when they heard those words spoken, prepare the way, they realized that that was actually just a brief segment. It was a preamble to a much larger passage found in the book of Isaiah. And the fuller passage in Isaiah goes something like this. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And so for the original audience, they understood that this voice calling in the desert was referring to a time and a place and an era where valleys would be made high and that mountains will be made low that rugged places will be made plain, and that rough ground shall become level. It's a metaphor. It's a time and a place where there will not be disparity, where there will be rulers on top and people who are oppressed on the bottom, but that God is going to do something to equalize the playing field of humanity. And so the beginning of Mark talks about a time where there will be no empires and that God will raise up the humble. And so this is, uh, this is sort of the preamble to what the story of Jesus is all about. And so in our scripture reading today, it begins with a man named John the Baptist. He, John the Baptist is sort of the Lord Eddard Stark of Game of Thrones because John the Baptist, like Ned, he lived on the periphery of society. He wasn't in the heart. He wasn't in Jerusalem, in the middle of the temple. He was a man that, Scripture says, lived outside in the wilderness. He was a man that lived outside of the wilderness, and he actually didn't want to become tainted by the corruption of the political and religious system that he lived in. And because he was not a part of the religious political system, it gave him the clarity of thought to be honest, to be, uh, to be fair, and to value justice. And John the Baptist, he represented a new way of living. And so our scripture reading says that he did uh, two things which were actually very radical. He did something called the baptism 
of repentance. Now, the baptism of repentance is actually pretty radical because during John the Baptist's time in Judaism, they were totally fixated on something called ritual purity. It meant that you needed to be pure ritually in order to participate and have a relationship with God. If you were not ritually pure, you couldn't participate in worship. So, for instance, if you ate the wrong type of food, you became ritually impure. So if you ate pork, you were ritually impure, you couldn't participate in worship. If you wore clothes of mixed fiber, so you wore a cotton and a wool blend, then basically because you wore that clothes, you were ritually impure, you could not participate in worship. If you touched blood, then you were ritually impure and you could not participate in worship. If you um, didn't wash your hands before you ate your meal, then you were ritually impure. And in order to cleanse yourself of this ritual impurity, uh, the religious system devised this elaborate system of different ways to cleanse yourself. And really, what this whole system of ritual purity was, it was all about social stratification. Because those who were on top were always ritually pure, and those who were poor were always ritually impure. But John the Baptist, he talks about a new cleansing. It's not about a ritualistic purity. John the Baptist says, hey, when you examine your life, do you ever get that thought, man, I just need a fresh start. I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to just hit the reset button and say, I want to start over new. I want to kick some of those bad habits, and I want to make myself right with God and with the people around me. And so the baptism of repentance was John's way of saying, hey, you don't have to go to the temple to become ritually pure. Come meet me at the Jordan River and just cleanse yourself and know that you and God are okay and in good relationship. The second thing that John the Baptist did that was very radical was he proclaimed forgiveness. Now, one thing that religious institutions back then and even today are really good at is making people feel guilty. <laughs> it's true. It's like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. There's a long list of things that will make you a sinner and make God angry with you. And, and religious institutions are really good at pointing out why we're sinners and why God can't love us. But John the Baptist does something different. He says, hey, guess what? God's not angry with you. All the mistakes that you've made in your life, God forgives you. God loves you. Do you think the religious institution at the time liked someone like John the Baptist, who basically preached and acted in the complete opposite of everything they stood for? They hated him. They thought he was a heretic. They thought he was a, a rebel. They thought he was a, you know, a, a troublemaker. And so John the Baptist, like our good friend, Lord Eddard Stark, met a very similar fate. They imprisoned John the Baptist. And then another plot spoiler here, in case you never read the Bible cover to cover, they behead John the Baptist as well. And so you think, oh, it's terrible. But that's not where the story ends. Because you see, the story continues after John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, he has this relative. He has this cousin 
of questionable, some would say illegitimate birth. Nobody really knew who the father of John the Baptist's cousin was. Because when that cousin was born, or when the, when the mother was pregnant, uh, she wasn't married at the time. And so nobody really knew who the father was. And they were so poor that his cousin was born inside of a manger where the animals were. And he was born without any titles. Nobody really knew who his father was. He had no political ties. He had no social power. And he was definitely dirt poor from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And so John the Baptist's cousin was this guy named Jesus. And somehow, this Jesus, who had no power, no authority, nothing, on his shoulders rested the burden of bringing down this Roman Empire to challenge this empire and to bring about a new way, a new reality, a new creation, when valleys would be raised up and that mountains would be made low. How on earth was this Jesus going to do that? That is the story of Advent. That is the story of Christmas. That's what this gospel is saying in the book of Mark. Prepare the way because this Jesus is coming and he will raise up every valley. He will bring down every mountain. All the rough grounds will be made plain. A new reality is coming about. This story of Christmas it's definitely not just the story of a birthday celebration. It was radical, it was subversive, it was political, and it was totally charged. And it was a way for the early Christians to remind them that, hey, you are living in the oppression of the Roman Empire, and the way of Jesus is offering you a new way to live. If you were a follower of Jesus, it meant that not only did you believe in Jesus and the things that Jesus did, but it meant that you had to partner up with Jesus in bringing down the fall of this empire. And so Advent was the four weeks. It was a way of saying, well, let me prepare myself so that I can partner up with God to bring down the empire that we lived in. Here's the interesting thing, though. One of my favorite pastors, Rob Bell, he always says, the power of a story is not that it happened, but that it happens. So the power of the stories in the Bible is not in the fact that it historically happened or didn't happen. The power of the gospel is that it happens. Because guess what? This past week, a video was released of a young black teenager in Chicago, Laquan McDonald, who was shot by the police. This happened a year ago, and they, re they released the video now. And we may have a diversity of opinions on what we need to do politically, whether we need to protest or demonstrate, or whether we need to take different routes. And I acknowledge that all of us might have different thoughts and opinions on that. But let's, but let's make one thing really clear. Empires existed 2,000 years ago, and empires exist today. There is a class that rules over another class. There are empires that have existed back then, 
And there are empires that continue to exist now. And so the power of the gospel is that it is just as relevant for us today as it was for Jesus and his disciples 2,000 years ago. And so if we would like to consider ourselves followers, disciples of Jesus, then we have just as much responsibility and obligation to partner with Christ to say, hey, what are the empires that exist today? And what are we doing to raise up every valley and to bring down every mountain? And so this Advent season, I want us to ask this question. I offer no solutions or easy answers, but I ask this question. What does it mean that every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low? The rough ground shall become level and rugged place, places of plain. What does that look like for those who are being killed because of the color of their skin? What does that mean for those people who will never be shot at because of the color of their skin? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus living in empire today? Ultimately, I believe that the story of Advent is a story of hope. Because guess what? God is not absent in the empire. God is absolutely at work within the empire. And we don't fight the empire with weapons of war or with violence. But John the Baptist says what? He says, I baptize you with water. The one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The spirit and the workings of God work within our hearts and our minds and empower us so that we can fight against the empire. And that's going to look very different than the weapons that the, war, that the world uses to fight with. And so I encourage you to continue in this conversation about what it means to be in the season of Advent. Don't do it just by yourself, thinking about it in your own head. If you're in a small group, talk about it with your small group members. Um, talk about it with your partners, talk about it with one of the pastors, talk about it with other people around you and say, hey, how are we going to live in this season of Advent as disciples of Christ? Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we come before you today and we are living in empires. Some of us benefit from it some of us are oppressed by it, and some of us ride the line, and we don't exactly know where we are. But God, we ask that the power of your Holy Spirit would empower us, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. Help us to realize that this ancient story is our story today. And would you allow us, would you call us, and empower us to partner up with your son, Jesus, so that we can raise up every valley and we can make level every mountain and hill. We give you thanks for all that you have done and all that you will continue to do in our lives throughout the season of Advent. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.